you would open your Bibles to page one, or maybe like mine, it's page two, finally. Genesis chapter one, where we will begin at verse 20 today, considering God's fifth day of creation. Do we have children's church? We do, we don't. There's a disagreement. Do we vote? We do. We do. Overruled on the nose, I guess. Children, you may go. And they're all going in different directions to different locations. <laughs> My apologies once again to Jeff and Maria Elena. There's a lot of details here. You may need to listen again rather than trying to write it all down. You, you would be astounded how much these two write down in a given sermon. They, they basically reproduce everything you hear. Let's go to prayer. Father, once again, this day, as in others that we have contemplated your creation, we marvel at what you have done. The evidence that you are the one who has done it is so strong. We grieve for many who do not see it. Perhaps with some explanation that they are not aware of, they might at least begin to see it. Help us to be your messengers of your reality, of your truth, of your gospel, of your forgiveness, of your love, of your judgment. May all that we say and do point to you as it should in all things. In Christ we pray. Amen. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Let's begin by observing this. The language that is used here in these verses related to the fifth day, is quite clear that the waters themselves 
do not produce sea life. God did. Now, if you go back to verses 11 and 12, where we read the earth sprouted forth vegetation or brought forth vegetation, even there, we are not to assume that the earth produced this vegetation on its own. God did it. After all, he did it within the confines of one creation day. But the language that we come across here in verse 20 is even clearer on this point. Not verse 20, but in, in the fifth day. The, the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. The, the sea monsters, every living creature that moves, the waters swarmed with these things. It isn't saying that the waters made them or that waters created them or, or that they evolved from the waters. It's saying that God filled the waters with these things. And God caused birds to multiply on the earth. God, by his, nothing more than, his creative word, as we read it in verse 20, then God said, he immediately fills the sea with all manner of sea creatures, and yes, tells it to go on and be fruitful and multiply ongoing, but it isn't as though there, that, that he hasn't created a lot of it right there to begin with. Now on day five, another new thing on day five, and we'll see the same thing on day six, God creates for the first time living creatures. The Hebrew term here is nephesh, which we might translate living souls. Creatures in the sea or creatures in the air, obviously they land on land, but fly in the air. And then, of course, day six, creatures on land that move, that can migrate, if you will, or move at will, have central nervous systems. All of this in contrast to vegetation on day three of God's creation, which, of course, is alive, is vegetation. It has what we might call biological life. But such vegetation is stationary, and it has no nephesh, it has no soul. It is not a living creature. And thus, vegetation, plants, etc., they are not alive in the same sense as all the creatures that God creates on days five and six. And that's important when you get to the fall and death entering the world, and, and it, it looks very much like that's where death begins to enter the world, but people think, well, but vegetation was alive, might, and, and has not vegetation died? Later on that. Day five is the first time that God created that which is said to be living, living creatures. Plants are not designated that way. They are organisms that have a kind of life, but they do not have conscious life. They are not reproductive living creatures that move or swarm. Nephesh living is that which we might translate it, it's that which breathes a creature with a soul that is conscious. Now we have to make a distinction here. 
in day six, animals. Animals are not self-conscious in the same way as human beings. So there is a difference between animal life, certainly in plant life, than that which is experienced by human beings or mankind. They are not self-conscious in the same way. They are conscious by instinct or by the way in which they were created. That doesn't mean they have no awareness, but they are not self-conscious in the same way. They do not think in the same sort of way that man does. Prior to the fall, there was no death on earth, no death of any living being or nephesh. Thus, one wonders, are plants excluded from that, from this no death before the fall? Well, it seems so, but again, more to consider on that in the future. We know so much more about living creatures than we did when the modern evolutionary theory as to their origin was propounded by Darwin. He wasn't the first evolutionist. Forms of evolution we know have gone back at least as far as the ancient Greeks, but Darwin is the one in the modern time that, that revived and, and strongly advocated the theory of evolution. But he did this based on a whole lot less knowledge of living creatures than we have today. The complexity of living things is so great that any notion that they evolved by chance becomes an increasingly absurd idea. The echolocation system, now this is one of these big words, echolocation system, for instance, in bats, not in baseball bats, it's not as though baseball bats have an echolocation, but in the flying bat, the unique lung system in birds, these kinds of examples, and these are but just a couple of them, of the amazing complexity where contemplating how these things would be evolved becomes exceptionally difficult. Many Christians who feel the necessity to accommodate at least old age, if not evolution in some form itself in Genesis, hold what is called the day-age theory. We talked about the gap theory. That's the huge amount of time between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1. There's another way that this is done, perhaps more popular now, as the gap theory has been given up by almost all. This is the day-age theory um, in which the days of God's creation in Genesis, these are believers in God who hold this theory, these days are conceived to be vast ages in length. A view that I think only results in, in greater problems than it solves. We'll talk about it more also in the future, although I touch on it now. Genesis tells us that creatures like whales, sea life, we read great sea monsters, and birds, Genesis tells us that these were created by God before land animals, whereas evolution theory 
says that they evolved from land animals. Day-agers face many other problems with the order of created things according to God if they conceive of each of these days being vast ages in spite of the fact they're described as a day with an evening and a morning which seems pretty indicative that they mean a normal day. You might think of the sun created on day four and the earth is created on day one. This is completely out of order for evolutionary theory. We also have no evidence of the intermediate steps, if one holds evolutionary theory, by which sea and air creatures, day five, allegedly evolve from land animals. Consider, and I can only give you a few examples, but consider the amazing sea cucumber. Uh, cucumber, you know, is a vegetable, but there is a sea creature, the sea cucumber, cucumber, a spineless, slug-like creature of the sea with five rows of tube feet that run lengthwise like the seams, vaguely, like the seams on a football. They have a mouth, do these sea cucumbers, at one end of their body, surrounded by tentacles. Sea cucumbers feed by stationing themselves where the o ocean current brings a steady supply of plankton. <clears throat> as well as tiny shrimp, which they eat, as well as other organic particles, which they eat. They then stick their tentacles, which grab these items, into the mouth, their mouths, one tentacle at a time, sucking off the food. Now, there is a peculiar type of fish called the pearl fish that shelters by day inside the sea cucumber, the little sea cucumber, which I've described. This fish feeds not off the things the cucumber is feeding off of, but this fish feeds literally off the internal organs of the sea cucumber. It consumes them. Amazingly, the sea cucumber is not harmed by this because it has the ability, we would say God-given, ability to regenerate its own organs. At night, the pearl fish travels through the sea cucumber's alimentary canal and emerges to supplement its diet on small crustaceans. It runs through the sea cucumber and emerges out through the alimentary canal. The sea cucumber has further an, an amazing and ingenious defense mechanism. When attacked, it expels its internal organs, which normally satisfy the predator, and then, of course, the sea cucumber just regenerates more of them. Well, this is an astounding thing. Sea cucumbers also secrete a glue-like substance which is exceptionally difficult to remove if you are struck by it. And this um, glue-like substance they also use 
to bind up their wounds. How this sea cucumber is supposed to have evolved by chance through an enormous number of evolutionary steps with all of the, the detail in this little creature is completely a mystery to evolution. Its existence, it seems, is a proof of a creator, designer, God, and examples like the sea cucumber could be multiplied. I could tell, I won't tell you about the archer fish, the seahorse, the hermit crab, and so many others, again and again and again, that give astounding proof. These are things that we have, and, and things that we have learned about such creatures since Darwin who had no concept of the kinds of detailed, complex characteristics that life has that would have to have evolved by chance, and, and how that's to be done is, is staggeringly absurd. Verse 21, we read that God created sea life and birds. Now here once again, it's the word created, Hebrew word bara, meaning here to create out of nothing. Bara is found four times in the creation narrative. At the beginning and at the ending. It was found in the first verse, Genesis 1-1, and in this creation narrative it is found in Genesis 2 and verse 3. Chapter divisions don't always come at the most appropriate places, and they never had them originally. The, the creation, the initial creation account ends at verse 3, and there we find the word bara as well. The fact that this word comes at the beginning of the creation account and at the end of the creation account strongly suggests that the whole creation was God's creating activity, including the various references we find to God making things. This was God creating things, an instantaneous creation, at times from nothing, at times using some substance created. But certainly what's not being conveyed is a long process of development or evolution. So bara is also used beginning and ending of this Genesis 1 to 2, 3 account. It's also used of the large sea creatures and birds and it's used of human beings. Some say some Christians have especially have said that, well, man did not evolve, but animal and plant life evolved. Well, if they say that, and if they take the Bible at all seriously, by the use of the single term bara created, are we to say that God created sea creatures and birds, who then presumably didn't evolve, but other animals and plants evolved, and then man didn't evolve because that was, it, it becomes ridiculous to try and hold a sort of hybrid view of belief in God with uh, evolution or forms thereof or parts thereof. No evolutionist is going to say that there were certain life forms that God created and the other life forms evolved. For anyone who takes scripture seriously, that sort of thinking is absurd. God directly created all kinds of life. That includes the vegetation, the plants, as kinds of life. After having spoken of living creatures in the sea in verse 20, why then does God refer to great sea monsters in verse 21? Well, 
ancient pagans believed that some of the gods were sea monsters. They had lots of different gods, and some of them were sea monsters. Ancient pagans were wrong. They were creatures, that is, the sea monsters, or the larger sea life. They were created by God, and as such, are under God's authority. They are not other gods of independent authority. The Hebrew word for sea monster is tannin, which is a cognate of the Canaanite word for the sea-dwelling enemy of Baal, which God declares the sea is but the sea creatures, rather, are but creatures that he has created and rules over. The tie-in to what pagans believed about Tannen, independent gods, God is in effect declaring in this statement, he created this. They are not independent gods who oppose him and have power that might overcome him. Ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian mythology is filled and these are just two examples, with fantastic tales of sea monsters, which were viewed as gods, and the ancient pagans feared these sea deities as though they were the embodiment of evil. The fact that Genesis tells us that God created them means that they are not gods to be feared. They are not the embodiment of evil for all things that God created were created good, but they were simply another form, type, kind of creature that God created and is sovereign over as he is sovereign over all of his creation. We cannot, of course, help but marvel at God's created creatures Leviathan, which is described in Job chapter 41, may well be the ancient crocodile Sarchosuchus. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but that's my shot. This ancient crocodile grew to 11 or 12 meters in length and weighed up to 8 tons. This massive croc dwarfs today's largest crocodiles, which are just over 6 meters, not 10, 11, 12 meters, and the largest crocs today weigh just over 1 ton, not 8. Given the ages of human beings before the flood, we haven't gotten to that, but we will, and you're probably well aware of it, human beings before the flood lived to incredibly long ages, well over 900 years in many, many cases, Given these long ages of human beings and presuming that other life forms lived also a very long life, reptiles, if they were to live a comparatively long life, would grow into much, much, much greater size, dinosaur type size, since reptiles grow throughout their lives. We grow up to a certain point of adult maturity and stop growing, well, other than out. <laughs> but reptiles grow throughout their lives. Thus, if life lived a lot longer, living things lived a lot longer, presumably many of these reptiles might have been much more. And Leviathan, an ancient gigantic crocodile, 
type creature. Other marvels. How does the complex lung capacity in sperm whales allow them to dive for up to two hours down to depths of up to two kilometers how does that evolve how does that capability evolve or the bumps and they are bumps on humpback whales which allow them to channel water as they move through it through the spaces between the bumps increasing flow speed improving their lift by 8% and reducing drag by 32%. The bumps are very effective in their ability to get around in the water. And whale eyes, intricately designed to see properly in water. You've been underwater, perhaps in a pool or the ocean, and you've opened your eyes and you see, but it's fairly blurry. It's not the same as seeing uh, outside of the water. Whale eyes are intricately designed to see properly in water with high refractive index to withstand what? Pressure. They dive deep. Much pressure. Their eyes are not affected by it. Human beings are affected by pressure. If we go way deep, we got to wear suits and masks and all kinds of things for protection they have that built in and whale ears are designed differently from land mammals to pick up airborne sound waves and they have specialized eardrums protecting them from again high pressure how do their fins and their tongues with counter current heat exchangers to minimize heat loss. How do these kinds of things evolve? They are incredibly complicated systems. You don't just evolve pieces of the system. That's not going to do it. You've got to have the whole working system. It's like the human eye or the whale eye. Or their nostrils, the blow holes on top of their heads. Or their specially fitted, these whales, nipples and mouths so that their calves can feed underwater. Now they, they come up and they, they blow at the surface, but they, they're underwater a long period of time and their calves are able to feed there. Or the sheets of whale bone in baleen whales that hang from the roof of their mouths to filter the plankton that they take in for food. Or the very precise, again, echolocation melon sound lens that emits or that focuses emitted sound in dolphins. You know, dolphins have this, this weird melon-like thing on their heads. These sound echolocution devices have automatic volume control in dolphins that are not deafened, therefore, by the clicks, the sound clicks. All of these kinds of things and many others led prominent evolutionary biologist Dr. Richard Sternberg to wonder how whales with their multiple anatomical novelties requiring many hundreds, indeed even thousands of adaptive evolutionary changes. The only way they could conceive of this in evolutionary 
uh, process how so many hundreds, if not thousands of such changes in less than, according to evolutionary theory, two million years. Even less than if they stretched it, which they don't think is the case, to nine million years. How could it be possible to develop these kinds of things in minute changes and so many of them that have to keep going in a positive direction, whereas all of them, until it's fully formed, aren't positive. They're just baggage. Sternberg concludes, I'm saying it doesn't add up. In other words, it can't be done. He's an evolutionist. That's his theory. I'm saying it doesn't add up. I'm an expert in this area. Lots of evolutionists are like this. In their area of expertise, they think, we got problems. System doesn't work. But in the areas I'm not an expert, I think it works. I assume it works in the other places. But some guy in the other place or, or woman will say, oh, we got serious problems. But I think in your area, it's working fine. That's what we assume. That's what we're taught. Not so. Then in the latter part, verse 21, our text, we have every winged bird that God created according to its kind. And this likely includes winged insects. Or perhaps they are to be identified with creeping things and other insects that aren't winged on day six. But they may well be here on day five. The phrase, after their, their kind, occurring twice in verse 21, twice comes later, verse 24, three times, verse 25, and once each in verses 11 and 12, after all, all living creatures, all, not creatures, all living things are created either on day three or five or six, after its kind repeated in those places so often, they're all, all references to after their kind are associated with procreation, which emphasizes the very truth that evolution denies. When living creatures reproduce, they can only reproduce creatures similar to themselves. Not, not necessarily identical, but similar to themselves according to their own kind. They do not reproduce evolving from one kind into another kind. The language here again, as with sea life, speaks of the immediate creation of a great variety of winged birds, winged creatures at the Lord's command, not an evolving process from one kind into another over allegedly millions of years. The life that fills the skies is every bit as full of marvels as the life that fills the seas and fresh bodies of water. But for God, the mystery, and it is a mystery, of evolving bird feathers is simply unsolved. There have been some statements made about this that are ridiculous. It's unsolved. Birds also have an incredibly complicated breathing system. I love birds. Not, don't know as much about them as David Severance, but I love birds. I didn't know this. Maybe he did, but I didn't know this. They have incredibly complicated breathing system, a system of air sacs and hollow bones which keep the air flowing in birds in one direction in special tubes in the lung. 
and blood flows through the lungs blood vessels in the opposite direction for birds for efficient oxygen uptake this is an excellent engineering design and totally different mind you totally different from reptiles which have what we might call bellows type lungs so the question would be how do bellows style lungs in reptiles in which the air flows in and out evolve gradually through an incredible number of steps into the one-way airflow of bird lungs birds are supposed to have evolved from reptiles how does this work to change the type of lung this is an incredible difference and an evolutionary complexity consider some individual birds I don't know about what's the funniest bird penguin, penguin. for some people it's pelican penguins are pretty funny um, there's some other funny ones but pelicans are certainly amusing looking pelicans have a wingspan that can reach to six and a half feet a long bill an expandable pouch a pouch which holds three times as much food as the pelican stomach can hold they swallow their food whole down the, a, a narrow long neck they dive for food from as much as 60 feet in the air which looks dangerous given their size and awkward shape but they're great fishers it's dangerous too that little tiny neck and they boom they go right down their pouch is specially designed to scoop the water like a net trapping food but letting seawater escape they are a marvel again of God's creative design or the albatross that might be considered one of the funnier looking birds with a wingspan of nearly 12 feet now here's some facts I had no idea they can live up to 80 years try that on for your dog cat horse etc they can live up to 80 years an adult can fly 1,000 miles in a single day staying aloft most of the time gliding simply gliding for much of the trip with their wings fully extended they use air currents to stay aloft not the flapping of wings as you see in so many birds primarily to stay aloft for long periods of time a young albatross might circle the world <laughs> as much as seven times before touching solid earth and they only breed in the Antarctic region and they only breed once every three years and they only lay one egg during breeding so an incredibly difficult breeding process the albatross is able to drink seawater it excretes the salt in seawater through its nasal passages it filters the salt through its nasal passages and out amazing capability evolution has no way to account for these amazing characteristics in the survival of the albatross especially given 
the incredible inefficiency of albatross breeding. Only once every three years, only one egg at a time. Woodpeckers. I love woodpeckers. I love watching woodpeckers. Woodpeckers don't give me a headache because I'm not doing what they're doing. They can strike wood up to 500 times a minute at a rate of about eight times a second. Their beak hits the wood at 13 miles an hour with more force than you would feel if you ran headlong into a tree while running as fast as you can, which is a lot faster than I can run now. And imagine doing that, hitting 500 times a minute. Woodpeckers' heads have a built-in shock-absorbing system that cushions their brains. How does evolution explain that? How does evolution explain bird migration? So many birds migrating huge distances with uncanny precision. Arctic terns, I'm told, go the furthest from the north to the south pole and back again each year. Most birds migrate long distances flying at night, navigating by the stars. Studies have shown that birds raised entirely indoors can orient themselves properly the first time that they see the stars. This is absolutely incredible. Tests run in planetariums reveal that birds know which direction to fly, even in an artificial sky, if the stars are placed properly. You confuse the placement of the stars in a planetarium, and you confuse the birds as well. They know. How do they get this? How do they know all this? How did birds acquire such capabilities through evolution? They didn't acquire them. Birds were created with them by God. The wonder of living creatures points unmistakably to God's design. The same God who per perfected, who rather perfectly oversees and provides for them and all other living creatures such that, as we read in Scripture, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will, Matthew 10, verse 29. Living organisms are... Living creatures are self-sustaining, more than the creatures, living organisms. They are self-sustaining. They get nourishment. They, they, the ones that breathe, breathe in atmosphere, defending themselves from predators. They have all kinds of unique ways, individual ones of them, of doing this perfectly suited to their particular environments. They're also self-repairing. When injured, they have the means to heal. When fatigued, they can recruit their strength by rest. They're also self-reproducing, capable of producing more organisms of the same kind. Scientists have sought to develop self-sustaining, self-repairing, self-replicating machines, but they have been unable. Amazingly, single living cells have all three of those capabilities convincing proof of an intelligent, designing God. Evolution posits that living creatures can evolve from one kind to another in defiance of what we know 
about DNA and genetics. The complex genetic code of every living creature limits it to what it is. There is no genetic information that can enable any organism to transform itself into something that it is not. In other words, come up with new genetic information. Genetics is a fairly recent science. The father of modern genetics, Gregor Mendel, was a contemporary of Darwin. What Darwin assumed was possible by evolving, we know from genetics, is not possible. Darwin didn't understand that, but we know that. It's not going to be pointed out. But then, of course, the evolutionist says, well, well, what about mutations? That's where you can make changes in the genetics. Mutations can cause changes in the genetic structure of living things. But evolution by mutations does not work. Mutations can alter, they can destroy existing information in an organism's genetic code. But, and this is key, mutations cannot add new coded information, which is required to go from one kind to another kind to another kind in a long evolving process. Mutations are genetic mistakes. They don't bring about whole new structures, and the genetic information required from or for them, which the related genetic coding or information did not exist to begin with, just cannot be involved, be evolved. Coded information, as we find in the genetic structure of every living being, simply does not arise by chance. It's way too complicated. It's not produced by nothing. It has a source. Our intelligent, infinitely great creator, God. We were taught, at least I was in school, to think of single-celled life as simple. But we know now that the DNA involved, even at the level of single-celled life is massively complex. There are about 100 trillion cells in the human body containing about 3 gigabytes of information, which doesn't sound like such a great amount now that we have computers that go much bigger, but that's huge information. Even the simplest living creature, the tiny germ Mycoplasma has about 600 kilobytes of information, such that Stanford University's Marcus Covert modeled the microplasma with computers. In modeling the process for one cell division, a colleague, A.C. Madrigal, said, what's fascinating is how much horsepower they needed to partially simulate, simulate rather, this simple organism. It took a cluster of 128 computers running for 9 to 10 hours to actually generate the data on the 25 categories of molecules that are involved in the cell's life cycle processes. This is unimaginably complex. 
The machine-like structures in living organisms need energy supplied by a molecule called ATP. ATP is produced by the world's tiniest motor, the complex ATP synthase, which is so tiny that 10 to the 17th power, 10, 17, zeros power, would only fill the volume of one pinhead. The complexity is beyond our ability to even grasp. The origin of the cell's DNA information and its decoding machinery is a huge problem for alleged evolutionary development. Astrophysicist and evolutionist Paul Davies said, we now know that the secret of life does not, lies not in the chemical ingredients as such, but with the logical structure and organizational coded arrangement of the molecules. Like a supercomputer, life is an information processing system. This is Davies. It is the software of the living cell that is the real mystery, not the hardware, not the cell's parts. It's, a, it's the, the mechanism, the, the intelligent designed mechanism, the, the information, that's where the, how do you evolve that? Davis says, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? That's what's required. And he answers, nobody knows. And he admits, there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. Creationists say, we know the master programmer, God Almighty. God blessed the sea life and birds and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first time this word bless is used in scripture is right here in verse 22. Frequently, God's blessings result in many descendants and some form of material prosperity, which of course, in a sense, descendants are. The command be fruitful and multiply indicates permanence, and propagation, not evolution. Each kind will produce and multiply and reproduce its same kind. The security of continued existence is wrapped up in this blessing of command that God gave. It is not necessary to, cons to assume that God created only an original pair of each kind to begin with. The fact that the waters on the first day of their creation teemed with swarms of living creatures suggests that many of each kind were originally created all at once. It's only when we get to mankind that God started with one man and then one woman. That in itself is a... How do we explain that evolution-wise? The fifth day closes in verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. A single day, a fifth literal day, a literal historical creation week. According to evolutionists, living creatures existed over millions of years prior to man, living and dying in millions of generations, but God tells us that he created man, male and female, on day six, 
the same day or just one day after all other living creatures that God created with the breath of life in them. Further, the fact that there was no death among living creatures prior to the fall of man in Genesis 3 is an insurmountable problem for anyone who would accept evolution and yet claim to believe in the Bible as well. Belief in evolution is spiritual, not rational based on actual evidence. Evolutionists are blindly devoted to chance because they refuse to be morally accountable to a personal, holy, creator, God. Amen. The more that scientists investigate all of life, the more complex they find that all of life is. Let me jump ahead really fast. The human brain is far more complex than NASA's space shuttle. Our brains are made up of at least six million functioning parts. No one would imagine that the space shuttle evolved by chance from nothing. On what sensible basis, therefore, do people think that life itself, in all of its living kinds, evolved by chance? Much less, how did the human brain evolve? Well, I'd go on to day six, but I don't want to wear you out. Let's stop and pray. Father, I think it's important that we make, and these have only been a few brief observations of what you created, for it reveals in what we know about it so much more than was known at the embarking of evolutionary theory, which is the popular view to this day, the popular explanation for everything outside of you or even allegedly with your help. But this is not what occurred. This is not what you have told us. We may be confident in your word. It is as you have said. It was done by you as you have said. We can defend this. We can believe this. It makes good sense to do so. That doesn't mean that everybody in the world will accept it. They have reasons for not accepting it that go beyond the facts. Nevertheless, the facts are important to observe, and thus we observe them in brief form. Guide us as we move on in weeks ahead to complete just this first week, this first creation uh, week account in the opening chapter plus of Genesis. In Christ we pray. Amen. If you will stand. One of our duties as believers is to share the truth. I think effectively sharing the truth about animals and plants and other creatures can be a fabulous way of pointing out that God is real and what he's told us is real. Maybe people could look beyond the opening chapter of the book at the other things he's told us that are real. Go forth and share about our Lord with those who need to know. In Christ, depart in his peace. Amen.